Welcome to Working Dog Radio. Broadcasting the bite. This episode of Working Dog Radio is brought to you in part by the best training conference on the planet, Hits K9 Training and Conference, www.hitsk9.net, or call Jeff Barrett, 863-529-5113. We'll see you there. One of our other great sponsors, be sure to check them out, Ray Allen Manufacturing up in Colorado Springs, rayallen.com. Be sure to use the discount code WORKINGDOGRADIO for 10% off. Spell it out, get the discount. Everyone knows Ted and I are huge fans of Dogtra. Uh, we use all their products, lots of stuff. Dogtra.com, use the discount code WDR10 for 10% off a single item over $200. All right, everybody loves drag and drop the easiest way possible. The easiest way to get a kennel up and running is to get them from Horizon Structures. Go to horizonstructures.com or call 1-888-447-4337. Make sure you tell them that Working Dog Radio sent you. There you go. One of our newest sponsors and one of our favorites, Kinetic Dog Food. Kineticdogfood.com or call 512-279-8966. Get your dog on the right track. One of our other fantastic sponsors that are run by the Heiser, some of the best people in the industry. We love those guys. Uh, looking for a reputable canine kennel with dog sales and training services? They're located in sunny New Smyrna, Florida. Southern Coast Canine provides services worldwide from purchasing your next single or dual-purpose working dog to handler courses and seminars. Southern Coast is a great resource, so check them out. And where you can check them out is Southern Coast Canine. That's letter K, number 9.com, or give them a call, 877-903-DOGS. That's dogs. We get asked all the time what happens to all the working dogs once they retire. If the dogs are lucky, they get to retire with their handler. Sometimes those dogs are expensive in their retirement due to health issues sustained from injuries on the job or old age in general. That's a heavy burden for a lot of the handlers. Enter organizations like the Georgia Police Canine Foundation. These great folks assist law enforcement agencies with life-saving supplies and equipment for our canine officers and help provide assistance for them in their retirements. It can be hard finding an organization with dogs' best interests at heart, but we strongly encourage you to check out Georgia Police Canine Foundation. Great people doing great work. Hey, everybody. Working Dog Radio. We are back broadcasting the bite from Ohio, Canton area. My name is Eric Stambro. With me, as always, from Tulsa, Oklahoma, is my co-host and good buddy, Ted Summers. Ted, how's it going? It's hot, dude. Summer's arrived in Oklahoma. It really? is hot. Oh shit! It was ninety degrees today. <laughs> it yeah. The dogs. We have a. I have a dog that just got imported from Holland, and before the coronavirus apocalypse ban, and uh, I'm pretty sure he thinks he got shipped to hell. He uh, he he was not. He was not about that life today. He uh, <laughs> we had to turn the misters on, and it was ninety degrees, and like the humidity is about sixty percent, and. I looked at him. He was laying on the shaded concrete under the mist, like panting. I'm like, oh, buddy, I got news for you. <laughs> Oklahoma is hot, bro. So, yeah, other than that, uh, not a lot. What's up with you? Well, I'm taking this time during the corona, because we're on total lockdown here in Ohio. Um, well, you wouldn't know it when you go up by the city. There's just as much <laughs> freaking traffic. People kill me. Um, but... I'm taking this time to get the new training facility up and running. My wife and I and my daughter spent yeah, four hours there yesterday just cleaning and vacuuming. Dude, I have like 
45 rooms just in the one side that we cleaned up and all carpet. Yeah, that, that's a lot of vacuuming. And, you know, it's an old old office building that's been vacant for a long time. So um, just getting everything ready, getting, getting it all ready so that when we're done with this, we hit the ground running because I'm going to be helping the local agency, Canton, with my old department with a canine class that's going to start as soon as the um, – as soon as everything's cleared up, it, there'll be six dogs in it, um, which one of which they bought from me. So uh, I'm pretty excited about that. Um, actually, there'll be two of my dogs in that class. Um, one of the other agencies bought. So anyways, we'll be running that class and we're going to hit the ground running. Got some SWAT teams that came and looked at the place already, you know, for them to use it. Because like Canton's SWAT's got a basic class coming up. We'll We'll get them in there and. I was in there today on the other side, the unclean side that we can use if nobody's in there. I got lost. I couldn't find I didn't know where the hell I was at. It's like a it's a maze. It's crazy. But um, <laughs> other than that, I'm just trying to stay safe and healthy and stay away from people and all the other crap. So it's perfect. I just play with dogs all day. I don't have yeah. to talk to people. I'm not open so, to the public, so <laughs> stay away right. from me. Right. There you go. <laughs> yeah. I, I like it's great because there's, I got a couple of places I'll take and run dogs. There's no one there. I'm out in this big fields all by myself, uh, just playing with dogs. It's an excuse to be antisocial for once. So, um, that part I'm not uh, too too upset about. So, uh, you ready to get started? Yeah. All right. So, uh, our next guest, um, we've heard him on. Uh, Ritland's podcast. We heard him on Joe Rogan's podcast. He's been on a bunch of different ones, uh, written several books. Uh, I'll, I'll read his little short bio. Since 1992, Lieutenant John Norris Jr. has survived, served as a game warden for the California Department of Fish and Wildlife. There he co-developed the Marijuana Enforcement Team and the Delta Team, which is uh, their comprehensive wilderness spec ops tactical and sniper unit aimed at combating the marijuana cartels decimation of california's wildlife resources lieutenant norris and his team have been featured on the national geographic channel's television series wild justice which i am sure is not as good as the tiger king probably close but not as good as the tiger king. <laughs> after watching it last night i'd agree <laughs> oh my god right right um in in addition to that he's the author of numerous magazine articles and uh three books one of which is the uh war in the woods Combating the Marijuana Cartels of America's Public Lands and Hidden War. Um, with us today is Lieutenant John Norris, retired, kind of, probably not. But uh, <laughs> Lieutenant John, how are you doing, John? Doing great, guys. Thanks so much for having me on the show. We really appreciate you coming on. I know you're uh, super busy hi hiding away from uh, people breathing on you, I'm sure. Yeah, like you guys back east, we have the coronavirus in force all over the West Coast. But uh, getting settled back in my new home base in Montana, where in my little town, we don't have one confirmed case and very few cases uh, here. And I have my retired canine as well. So a little social distancing with the dog in the woods and uh, keeping it close to home is, is going to be the next uh, next operation for the next several weeks. Cause I'm, like you guys are doing as well out there. Yeah, one of the reasons why we wanted to have you on is, uh, we'll get into it a little bit, is because you guys got pretty heavy into canine usage, and we'll get into that. But usually at this point, we have the guest uh, tell us a little bit about his bio. Uh, if you could start from, you know, a little bit about your life and where we're up to today. 
Yeah, um, you guys covered it, and again, really cool to be on this show because, like you guys, I'm a dog lover. Um, even before using dogs for law enforcement purposes, uh, grew up as a, a hunter and angler, just an outdoorsman, you know, three generations deep, um, all over the West Coast and in Montana. And we always had hunting dogs, so Labradors for waterfowl primarily. Um, the canine, the companion canine I retired with is a Labrador. Um became a game warden just because of my love for wildlife resource protection and waterways and being in the woods, you know, my whole life. And that was back in 1992 when I started. And after 28 years, just about a year ago, I, uh, I, I pulled the plug, um, having a really diverse career. I feel very blessed to have done just about everything on the traditional game warden front. But in 2013, I got to develop and or co-develop and then supervise through a pilot program, uh, our first statewide tactical unit aimed at what you did in the intro, Eric, and talked about specifically targeting the marijuana cartels, the cartels in general out of Mexico, um, creating this tainted cannabis that's being sold all over the black market, doesn't have anything to do with the legitimate marijuana industry that's in some states, right, wrong, or indifferent. Um, and we saw the violence level and the level of environmental decimation just go up fivefold. Uh, when we started to encounter these type of bad guys, these type of environmental criminals. And we developed a sniper unit out of that because we were getting into so many dangerous situations with these guys. Um, this was before we brought in dual-purpose canines and really developed that side of our program. But the last six years specifically, I got to focus on that. So I, I kind of got to go out doing the coolest job I ever got to do um, for, the, for the department. Uh, but it also brought awareness to a whole nother level of environmental crime being done by, you know, these foreign organized crime groups and um, learned a lot from it. And definitely a lot on the canine front with uh, some of the amazing dogs and the tactics we developed and all the things we've shared with canine handlers, you know, now all over the country. Some people may or, or may not know that you, you consider yourself, you call yourselves game wardens. Correct. Uh, in California um, and in some other States, not so much over over this way, but in California, you have such a a, a wide variety of stuff out in nature and the things that you got to do with wildlife and animals and all that protection and everything. You guys uh, have to be like wear a ton of hats. Like you have to know a ton of stuff um, prior to getting into. And we'll we'll delve into here in April two thousand four when you f- uh, found the first cartel stuff did had you had a lot of experience with drug traffickers very little up to that point and you hit it on the head eric when you said we kind of uh, wear a lot of hats because like you guys that have come from you know traditional law enforcement roles whether police officers sheriff's deputies federal agents we have to do all of that and we're sworn to do all of that at the state level then federally deputized as well through the u.s fish and wildlife service to do interstate stuff but our forte and focus is on wildlife law enforcement, specifically hunting, fishing, environmental crime, water pollution, all those different caveats that affect not only our wildlife, but the clean water we drink, you know, the, the water we use for fisheries, um, all of that. And that's what people think game wardens traditionally do or what they call conservation officers, wildlife officers. There's a multitude of names for what we do. And we always integrate as a force multiplier with our local allied agencies from the police departments and sheriff's departments uh, at the local level, especially. But when we started to see these, these cartel groups, and I actually saw my first grow site 
that was run by Mexican cartels on the Southern California-Mexico border when I started my career way back in 1992. I was working with Forest Service LEOs. Um, I had a lot of national forests in Southern California where my first patrol district was. I was completely foreign to the area. I was wet behind the ears, a completely green rookie, doing the solo game warden thing out of the academy and out of my field training officer program. And fortunately, I met a really cool federal LEO that became a really good friend, you know, fellow predator hunter, hand loader, sniper uh, for his unit as well later on down the road. And Forest Service was starting to see these cartel groups coming down in the late 80s, early 90s is when they first made the jump across the border to grow their tainted weed within our borders as opposed to just doing it in Mexico. So I got to see a grow site at the time. We didn't catch anybody that that day. It was a, a long hike in some pretty pretty remote country. But I got to see the infrastructure a little bit, but I never had contact with suspects. I saw a massive weed field of like 11,000 plants. And then that was the first and last time I saw that for the better part of about a 15-year window um, until I got back up into the Silicon Valley many years later, which is my hometown area where I grew up in California. And I was now running that squad. I was a lieutenant of two and a half counties, still doing patrol with the guys. And we stumbled into some stuff, like you mentioned in 2004, that we just never expected to see. Yeah, so that it's crazy, you know, uh, from being a law enforcement officer myself for a long time. It's just crazy and weird how things happen. Uh, real quick, talk about that incident in April of 04 and what led you to to find these guys? Because it had, it like nobody had called and said, hey, there's some weird dudes up here doing something. It was something completely different. Yeah, one thing we've noticed when we first started to see these cartel growers is their their level of stealth and field craft is exponentially exponentially greater than most you know poachers we'd ever run across up to that point now granted there were some diehard you know guys baiting deer guys spotlighting deer at night that would do a lot of counter surveillance and try to you know exercise some good field craft not to get caught by by the sneaky game warden but these guys are very seldomly found by the public as far as when we're talking about the marijuana cartel groups, because they know they're committing felonies. They know, you know, they're here completely illegally for a product that's never going to be legal. Um, they're not citizens of the U.S., so they're technically, most of them qualify as a deportable felon because they have criminal histories for narcotics trafficking, maybe assault, maybe murder weapons violations, you name it, uh, in, you know, south of the border and maybe even in other countries. So when my partner, who was a longtime friend that, that my family grew up with and uh, quite an outdoorsman himself, was doing his fisheries master's thesis on steelhead trout and red-legged and yellow-legged frog, all of these sensitive species in a really pristine canyon in the lower foothills below Henry Coast State Park where we all grew up, and he called me one day and just said, hey, you know, one of these creeks, John, is bone dry and it's like the middle of April. We got all this winter runoff. All the creeks were flowing great. We had a great winter, so there's no reason one of my tributaries should be dry. And when it was dry, everything that he was studying that are threatened endangered species for many miles above us in to the headwaters of where this creek was flowing, all of that stuff was dead. So dead fish, dead frogs, garbage in the creek, um, you name it. It was just a train wreck. And I grabbed him, took him to the top of the ridge one day. We dove into the canyon and got where we, you know, we had to go deep into a, a pretty remote canyon where we had no cell coverage. We had no radio contact. Um, he was a good informant, an unarmed civilian. And I expected to see like a 
farmer or a rancher diverting water for cattle or stealing water for his property. We see a lot of that in those remote, you know, dry creeks that shouldn't be dry certain parts of the year. And when we got into the water diversion and started to follow this man-made dam in this pristine creek that he had been studying for years and follow the water line several hundred yards down this really steep canyon and creek, we ran into seven or 8,000 marijuana plants about a foot tall on both sides of the channel, a bunch of vegetation and tree life that had been cut out and stripped out to make room for the marijuana to grow and to absorb the sunlight it needs. And then on top of that, we ran into two armed growers with AKs and carrying machetes, all dressed in OD green battle dress uniform, old school camos, working their grow site. And first time I'd ever seen that, and you got to remember, this is the foothills of Silicon Valley back in the 90s. It's one, it was crazy to see something like that, guys, like in the Southern California National Forest, four miles into the backcountry, but this is, you know, literally within 30 miles of the tech capital of the world and not something any of us expected to see. We came very close to being detected that day, but fortunately we were not. Had we been detected that day, it would have been a very violent encounter to get out of there safely the way these guys were armed with their mindset. And I don't think we would have been able to continue doing what we did had we not had a good turnout that day, but we did. And when we got out of there, that's when kind of my whole career path really changed. After seeing the damage environmentally they were doing, how heavily armed they were, how careful and stealthy and cautious they were in the growth site, even though they never saw us, guys, they were moving through that creek and moving through that growth site like they were a two-man small unit patrol. They were looking over their backside, checking their six o'clock. They were scanning, you know, with their weapons. They had their heads on a swivel, just like we would on a tactical unit or a SWAT unit or anything like that. They were, they were exercising some of those same sneaky, stealthy hunter-type tactics that we just don't normally see for your routine poacher. Um, and that told me we were up against a whole different type of wildlife criminal when we found that growth site. So my whole career back here in Ohio, and I, I did dope for four years, specifically a dope, nice. um, all, all the grow operations I got, I mean, we did it, there was helicopter eradication, those were always real small, but all the grow operations that I did were indoor grows. Um, 7,000 plants outdoors, what, how, how big of an area are we talking Oh, man, Eric, we're talking a good spread. We're talking spread out over sometimes as many as three or four acres, but not in a block, you know, not in a square acreage, but almost like a linear stretch along rectangle. So these plants went easily a quarter mile down the creek. So from where we first saw the water diversion, go a couple hundred yards, the first grow, the first plant start, and they go up about 50 yards each side of the bank, maybe a brush and kind of a, kind of a wooded, you know, dividing line if you will so it doesn't look too obvious from the air what they're doing and then another plot that's about 50 yards long and this would go on and on and on for the better part of a quarter mile and it it was mind-blowing to me like you said how big does that translate to the first time seeing it and what we learned over the years that was that was a moderately good-sized cartel grow for the west coast especially in california Um, average 5,000 plants in these growth sites give or take um, a small one might be 2,000 plants, but we've been into some of these that are 50, 100,000 plants deep in some of the national forest portions of, of Northern California that literally take over two or three mountainsides. And we're up there for days dealing with it. It's just, just mind-blowing how big these can get sometimes and remain undetected for at least a few seasons. 
Yeah, Oklahoma. Wow. I, actually, I have a buddy that's on the um, that's on a unit um, that's part of a state agency here that does basically the same thing. And uh, we have a parts of Oklahoma are extremely rural, especially in the south um, eastern portion of the state. Um, and it has a long history of kind of like an outlaw type deal. I mean, Jesse James hit out there back yeah. in the day at a place called Robbers Cave, and that county today, Adair County, is still very much a like wild west type thing and these dudes um the technology that some of these guys use to detect this is all has to do um with water runoff and that's how they end up finding these things and a lot of them then you know they use helicopters and everything else to kind of backtrack it up the thing up the up the way but there's been some crazy some crazy run-ins the same thing on you combine that with um most of oklahoma is uh, an indian reservation at some point so the overlapping jurisdictions and then the tribes not knowing that people are on their land, whether they're federal law enforcement, <laughs> state law enforcement, or whether they're cartel members, it gets funky pretty quick. So, you know, hearing you talk right. about that is like, listen, it was, reminds me of listening to my buddy talk about it, too. Um, so, you know, fast forwarding to August 5th, um, 2005, uh, there was an instance that happened with you and your guys that sort of changed um, everything moving forward from there. So talk about that a little bit. You bet, Ted. On that one, it was it was just the very next season from that grow we all found or that, that I and my partner found in 2004. You know, we had eradicated that thing. We had brought in a narcotics task force that we hadn't worked with yet, so multiple agencies involved. But we met some really cool Santa Clara County Sheriff's deputies um, that were very like-minded. You know, they were, they were hunters by trade from the standpoint of a conservation model growing up, hunting and fishing. So they were also snipers on their, on their SWAT team. So they already had, you know, the innate drive and skill sets to, to kind of go after and apprehend these type of uh, cartel growers we were going after. So we were merging with them now because fortunately one of the coolest things that came out of that first case in 2004 was meeting those guys. And as you guys know, working tactics and being on SWAT teams and working with fellow handlers, once you find that certain chemistry and that certain brotherhood, you know, you, you really feel kind of unstoppable. You're in such good space with, with good partners. And that's what we were very fortunate and blessed to have at that point. Um, so we were helping them out on a grow August 5th, 2005, a day that we've talked about, I've written about in my first book and referenced in my second um, extensively because that was the day that everything changed from a violent standpoint when um, three game wardens, me leading two of my younger guys and three sheriff's deputies were going up into what's called the Sierra Azul Mid Peninsula Open Space District, a very brushy wooded densely forested area but is just above the silicon valley i mean you're literally a stone's throw looking straight down at facebook the tech capital at ebay um, cisco google apple you name it and but in those foothills right above that affluent valley of the silicon valley was unbeknownst to us at the time just a massive complex of cartel growth sites that had been in play for at least five years maybe longer they had just never been caught and enforcement hadn't found them Fortunately, the public hadn't found them, but that year we found one big one that turned out to be five. And when we were going in on a small unit to clear that thing out and eradicate it and, you know, apprehend any suspects if we, if we ran into them, um, we took one round from an AK-47 or an SKS derivative. And that one round struck my, uh, my young partner through both legs and he was bleeding out of four holes through, through both legs for the better part of three hours. Um, the gunfight that ensued after that, we ended up neutralizing one out of two, maybe three of the suspects um, and kind of a domino effect of those of us that did engage suspects. 
And fortunately, the bad guys only got off one round. Uh, the unfortunate part was that one round hit my partner. Um, but fortunately, after a three-hour wait for a rescue um, from, an, from air support that none of the counties and none of the enforcement agencies were initially prepared to deal with, because, guys, we want to remember at this time, no officer that we knew of in the nation had ever been shot at or ambushed or effectively hurt by any cartel growers. Normally, you know, Ted, you said something like, I don't know how many bad guys you guys have run across, but a lot of times these guys are so good and sneaky, they'd slip out, they'd take the guns with them, and we'd find fresh shoot, you know, fresh footprints, you know, good uh, trail indicators on inside the camp that, you know, maybe a cook pot of food. But mostly we weren't running into bad guys. We were missing them. These guys were holding their ground because it was harvest time and they were kind of a more hardened crew. And uh, they were two of probably 20 that were up on that mountainside of five different grow sites. Um, so after we got my partner rescued, he went into multiple surgeries. It was touch and go for a while, but fortunately he did survive. He ended up making uh, a pretty miraculous full recovery and going back on duty almost exactly a year um, or the following January um, after the incident. And, and has become a fantastic game warden lieutenant now. And, uh, you know, just, just been one of our, our, our A students, if you will, from the standpoint of being a conservation officer. But that changed the game for everybody on the West Coast, and that word seeped out to where you guys are. And we, we debriefed and discussed and, and presented on this thing and broke it down for law enforcement circles specifically on the lessons learned, the stuff we were ill-equipped to deal with, um, the mistakes we certainly made in the process just by lack of knowledge. And one of the best things that came out of such a horrible experience during that was our administrators and other agencies looking at this as it's not, it's not a sedate problem. You know, it's not just illegal nationals trying to make a buck in this country. And if they get caught, they get caught. This is hardened cartel elements embedded in America and armed appropriately to defend that growth site, that multi-million dollar black market cash crop. So right then, right then we knew we were not ready to deal with this from a standard conservation officer, game warden front, or even the sheriff's department, the way they were set up, even a, an urban, a primarily urban focused SWAT unit wasn't necessarily set up to handle this problem effectively. And that's when those tactics started to informally change between us and the sheriff's office of Santa, Santa Clara County. Um, but that led up to the years of developing that, you know, all the way up to 2013, it was a very long process to get to have our own team but it was that first gunfight, first of actually six we were involved in. Um, but that one where we had an injury to one of ours really changed the game. Was anybody from that caught or identified from like fingerprints or DNA or anything? Um, I assume these dudes were probably not in the country legally, so there's no... And was there like biometric data on them so you could identify them? Or they were, I mean... Yeah, there was some of that. Um, a, lot of that a lot of that data and a lot of that science wasn't quite... It wasn't quite mainstream like it is now, um, but we did we did backtrack the origins of these guys. Um, some of them were actually embedded in California permanently under false false IDs, um, deportable felon status because of the criminal history they had, but kind of hiding in plain sight. These guys are really good, and this leads into the everybody you know on the listening front for this this awesome show should know is that these cartel guys from Sinaloa, from the new generation cartel, from what used to be called LFM, La Familia Michoacana, they're embedded all over America and they don't go south unless they absolutely have to, unless they're caught and they're, they're deported um, 
through a law enforcement action or through an ICE, you know, deporting action or something like that. They're really good at hiding in plain sight, and they do that by design so they don't have to risk border crossings. They don't have to lose loads or anything on the narcotics front, the human trafficking front, any of those things. So these guys were just those type of guys. They had been here for 10 or 15 years. They had been running grow operations in the summer, cooking methamphetamine in the winter. This was before the big fentanyl you know, uh, cartel involvement started to blow up. But those same organizations now that these guys were part of are now doing that, as well as the human trafficking and the gun running going on in all 50 states. And like you were saying, Ted and Eric, you guys have an element and have even seen, it sounds like, some cartel marijuana grows, maybe to a smaller extent over in the east. But many of your states have these same groups we see in California. They just don't have the growing climate. They don't have the, the, the weather that, you know, kind of engenders great growing for nine months out of the year like we do in California, unfortunately making us the, the best black market cartel weed state in the nation. But these guys are everywhere, and that's what these guys were. They were, uh, they were embedded, tied to several organizations, and it was just the first time they'd ever been seen by law enforcement and vice versa. The one thing that we have an advantage in Ohio is cartel dudes don't seem to like the cold. So they don't stay here very long. We don't have much. We don't have much of that here. But it's but we get a lot of cartel dope here. Uh, a lot of um, right. traffic stop in California, straight across. I'm sure Oklahoma has the same thing. Well, Oklahoma's a little different. Yeah. Our state bird is actually meth. Um, so it's <laughs> uh, you know we like meth. Here. We like meth here. So uh, it's kind of a funny deal. Like we're talking about these clandestine grow operations. Um, a friend of mine is a uh, defense attorney here in Oklahoma and defended a guy that was working for the uh, some motorcycle gangs that they literally, I mean, this is some Walter White shit. They set him up a um, multi-million dollar lab. Um, the guy had a, two wow. chemistry degrees from university. Well, I'm not going to say where from. from. He had two chemistry degrees and uh, set up a multi-million dollar lab uh, in plain sight. I'm not going to say where it was at, but I will put it to you this way. I've driven by it multiple times and had no idea, and this dude was producing hundreds of pounds a week of meth. And Damn. Wow. Yeah, so it's kind of a similar deal, uh, but, yeah, I mean, it's a uh, it was a clandestine type of deal, hidden in plain sight like you were saying. I mean, he was he look he was like a Walter White looking dude. I mean, he was like a little chemist, and that's what he was doing. I mean, the motorcycle gangs are paying him well, and I mean, you know, so it is what it is. <laughs> Everything you guys are mentioning that you're seeing over there, I was turned on to really around the time of retirement. You know, talking to game wardens at like the national what we call the NOEA conference, which is the game warden conference nationwide, and even get guys from Canada. And I talked to a lot of guys from Ohio that were either game wardens or you know narcotic task force from mainline agencies like yours and ted in oklahoma as well because oklahoma hosted our last one this last summer in july was uh was in oklahoma city and i cannot yeah. believe the amount of you know small grows and like you said meth and now the fentanyl thing i mean it was just starting to blow up and blow up and blow up especially as these you know legal weed states were starting to regulate and driving the black market even heavier so it's interesting you guys come from two states that I got hit hard at that conference on. <laughs> we need to talk. We need to do some training. We need some yeah. lessons learned because we are running into this crap and we don't have anybody to handle it the right way, you know? So small yeah. world. This is the, uh, I got hired in my department. I worked at a couple of small departments in the early nineties. I got hired at mine in 96. Um, I'm very familiar 
with the style of leadership and things of admins that were hired in the late 80s and the early 90s. When you're, you find this stuff in 04, things are going on between 04, 05. The shootout happens in 05. Um, I think you guys had another shootout in 07, maybe in 09, mm-hmm. somewhere around a couple of years. How much bullshit backlash were you getting from admins who are just like, this isn't what we do? You know, we, it was it was a mixed bag, Eric, and that's that's a good question because that was our biggest hurdle, I think, to having the team put together and forming the Met, what took us so long to get there. Um, and even when you look at traditional kind of administrative red tape, I think we, we actually got there in a decent amount of time for a very traditional, you know, conservation agency. But at the time when the shooting happened in 2005, we had a very progressive chief, Nancy Foley. I, I talk about her in the first book especially because that second chapter goes mm-hmm. into this. And it goes into it in, in a lot more depth, obviously, than we can here. But Nance was all about keeping us in the game on the environmental front. And she liked the idea that there was a tactical element of game wardens kind of training the rest of the state of game wardens to get to the level of tactical proficiency that they could handle not only this type of stuff, in a team unit, but they could handle something alone, you know, cause we're always alone. We, with the exception of our canine, we very seldom have a partner. We might be eight miles in the back country or further and backups, you know, literally three, four hours away in worst case scenarios. Um, she was all about keeping us involved in this even after the shooting, but there was a lot of backlash at the governor's level. Um, a lot of middle management, you know, certain assistant chiefs and captains that said, what the hell are we doing on a drug case? Game wardens don't do marijuana cases. You know, we don't clean up trash in the woods from these grow sites. We're not garbage collectors. You know, go check fishing licenses. Go out and make a, a hunting case. Go do, a, oh, a you know, a traditional shit. water pollution yeah. case. And, 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 guys, the thing that – it sounds crazy now to think that that perception would be there, but that was the majority of leadership we had at the time. And then we had – thankfully, we had a handful of progressive-minded, you know, let's, uh, let's go outside the box. Let's get a little Western, if you will. And let's start to address these other issues that game wardens should be involved in. And, and, and Nance started that. Um, but even with the political backlash through her whole tenure from 05 all the way up to, uh, you know, we're pushing like 2011, 2012, we couldn't get a dedicated team set up because it just, it just freaked out the, the traditional minded guys. They're like, it's going to take an impact on patrol. Are these guys playing cop, soldier, SWAT guy, SEAL team guy? What are game wardens doing? You know, it made no sense um, to that comprehension of doing the traditional stuff. But um, after we narrowly avoided what would have been our seventh gunfight in 2012, and I go in in my new book in Hidden War, it's chapter two, because that's when Phoebe, and we're gonna, I know we're going to talk about Canine Phoebe a little bit later, that's when Phoebe, after working so many years with her and Brian Boyd, her, her awesome handler, that was the day she saved my life and all my team members' life, like no more than three air miles from where I grew up in the, in the city of Morgan Hill born and raised and when that happened and we suddenly brought some great a, a great dog to the equation that got us out of that scrape about 20 to 40 other instances that easily would have ended in an officer involved shooting i was on the phone to nancy my main chief and mike Carrion, who was our assistant chief up in northern california and would loan brian out to roam the state to help us out with his with his canine phoebe um, i told him the story like when we were code four and everything was under control on that hillside and we were now eradicating. Um, I had to tell the story in real time because it was a close call for me personally. But for the unit, thinking outside of what we were just doing on the Met front, that's when I knew we needed a dedicated team and we needed these dogs on every mission we, we possibly went on. And 
when Mike became the chief in 2013, that's when he decided to just buck tradition and say, hey, I've had 35 years. You know, I've been a game warden at every level. I don't care about the politics. Um, I'm going to be here a couple more years. And if I can do anything that's progressive for the agency that's going to keep us environmentally relevant on a massive environmental criminal and not back down from it, go, go test it. Build your team. Let's do a test program. Pick the right guys. And let's see if we need to justify this thing for a dedicated full-time team. And that's what, you know, we, we talk about the new book, Hidden War Guys, and what that goes into. It's all about forming that team, the internal, external politics, and having what I consider two really good leaders, Nance, in the early days, and then Mike coming in later to say, hey, we're just going to buck tradition, and I'm going to take the heat for you guys. Go out and operate and build what we need to, to build. And I was, I was very fortunate to, uh, to be granted that opportunity to build that unit um, with some other four founders of the program. Um, had it not been for those two chiefs, we would have never have had this unit. Uh, it would have never happened. That's awesome. That's a very forward thinking, um, especially with all the political pressure. Um, all right, right, so we're about halfway through. We're going to go ahead and take a break and pay the bills. Um, if you're <laughs> yeah, right. guys listening to this on Patreon, if you're listening on Patreon, it's going to be a uh, commercial-free episode. If you're listening on everywhere else, please listen to the sponsors. Support them. There's great discount codes and everything in there. So when we get back uh, with John, we're going to get into all things canine related to his mission and um, talk about Phoebe specifically. Thank you. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. We're going to take a break real quick, uh, and we're going to pay some bills, and we're going to address some of our fantastic sponsors. Hits Canine Training Conference is going to be the first one. This is America's premier canine training seminar packed to the brim with some of the world's best instructors and Eric and I. You know, we're going to be teaching the scenario-based training seminar uh, that revolves around the HRD company that we also have. And, uh, you know, we're going to do the whole dog and pony show. Eric's going to tell us jokes, and I'm going to talk about case law. There are going to be other instructors that are going to be covering great topics from case law to admin to bite work to detection to tracking, everything in between for all working dogs. There's no better place to learn and no better place to network with other handlers, breeders, and trainers. HITS 2020 is being held in Scottsdale, Arizona this year from August 18th to the 21st to hurry up and register. And I know all of you listening, wait to the last damn minute to to register. Don't do that because the price goes up. Go to HITS K9, that's letter K number nine, dot net, or call Jeff Barrett at 863-529-5113. Make sure you get signed up. Come to Scottsdale. I hear the hotel has a wave pool that you can surf in. So uh, I'm bringing my board shorts. And Ray Allen Canine Manufacturing, it's no secret that we love Ray Allen Canine Equipment. We use their products every single day. Their mission statement says it all, to be a world leader in quality and innovation of professional canine equipment for police, military, Schutzen, and ring sport to exceed our customers' expectations and delivery on time, every time, at a fair price. We full-heartedly believe they've held true to that since it is our go-to one-stop shop for everything dog one of the longtime sponsors of working dog radio from the beginning has been highland canine in north carolina tactical police canine aka highland canine in north carolina offers training seminars and consulting globally for police military and non-government agencies they provide customized training programs to address specific problems and meet the needs of your organization check out their wide array of handler courses instructor courses supervisor courses and online courses at tacticalpolicecaninetraining.com. Uh, Jason and Aaron Ferguson are two of our most favorite people, and they have been with us since the beginning, so hit them up. We get it. Fueling a working dog can be tough. 
but they need that high quality food to give them the energy and nutrients that they require for the work we ask them to do. Kinetic Dog Food has a great balance of healthy meats and grains and is made specifically for working and sporting dogs. They have a full line of foods and supplements available and they've been working to perfect their line with thousands of dogs in hundreds of departments across the U.S. And you can buy it locally, online, or at Tractor Supply. Okay. Another one of our favorite partnerships is with the one and only Dogtra. These guys are producing some amazing tools in the dog training world. Everything from e-collars, GPS tracking, ball training, bark collars. If it's electronic, Dogtra is the best. They are truly revolutionizing the way you communicate with your dog. Plus, they give us a great discount code. Go to dogtra.com. Everybody hears me say all the time, you can't teach dogs to bite people and act shocked when they do. Inevitably, I get bit. You've all heard me talk about how I get tagged and being tagged by a dog sucks. So I've used quick term <laughs> to help myself. Uh, but before I had to go to the doctor's office, uh, it, it definitely helped keep down infection and everything else. And I've had some uh, non-scarring because of it, too. So it's pretty good. But it's no exaggeration. The stuff is great. Once daily treatment for any skin condition on small wounds to help stop little issues from becoming big ones that your admins are sure to love. It comes in a spray, it comes in an ointment, it comes in a dressing. Quickterm is great at creating protective barrier and promoting wound healing. There's no reason not to have a bottle of this in the patrol car, or your kennel, or your first aid cabinet. Plus, it's, it's uh, temperature stable. So you can keep it in the patrol car when it's cold, when it's hot, whenever, and it'll still be good. Make sure you hit them up at vetcare.us and use the discount code 10WDR for a discount on your first purchase which is going to be 10 percent have you ever dreamed of having your own kennel but don't know where to start horizon structures has taken all of the guesswork out of building a kennel everything is pre-built to your specifications and preferences and then assembled and dropped off at your land boom new kennels and these things are amazing you've got to see them to truly believe them their website horizonstructures.com is a one-stop shop. Build your best kennel, your favorite things you want. Check it out, horizonstructures.com. All right, everybody, we are back. Hope you enjoyed the commercials. Hope you wrote down the discount codes. If you didn't, they're at the bottom in the show notes, so you can go check them out. They're clickable. Links will take you right there. We and are they're with, on the newly designed uh, website. Yes, yes. Oh, yeah. I forgot yeah. about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, you can click them there. Too. We're with Lieutenant John Norris. We're going, we've been talking about uh, dealing with the, the early stages of dealing with the cartels um, out in California, uh, their clandestine uh, grow operations and the violence that has ensued with it. Prior to, you know, to the spin up in 2014 when you got permission to go full go, um, you guys didn't have dedicated dogs or anything like that. You did get a chance to have um, canine Phoebe and her handler Brian. Like, like around 2011, 2012, I remember reading, uh, come a couple times. Talk, talk about, like, when it, right, how, how fast was it a light bulb that you're like, shit, this is what we need to add? Oh, man, Eric, it was, it was an overnight experience. We had, um, Brian and I had been buddies since the academy, and uh, I had trained him in his academy class because he was quite a few years after, after I came on being one of, my, you know, being one of the dinosaurs. And he became one of our first canine handlers when 2006-ish, we, 2007, we started to really get our, 
our three-pronged canine program back up and running. And he got paired with canine Phoebe, and at the time Phoebe was a year and a half, I think, maybe at 18 months, I could be wrong, give or take a couple of months. But she was a young dog, Belgian Mal, um, great, great uh, pedigree, came from a great pre-trainer and everything. But Brian was green and Phoebe was green. And they started going out, going through the, you know, the dual purpose academy and, and getting certified in our, our canine academy. And then going out and working with allied agencies, doing the fish and game recovery thing, finding wildlife, poached wildlife evidence, you know, guns, shell casings, you name it. Uh, found some murder weapons, found some lost lost kids. She was making a good career for herself, being just a good canine overall, but then having a real motivated handler like Brian. And I mean, you guys know more than anybody how that handler-dog combination, you know, just, just makes or breaks everything so well. And watching them develop before we even had a MET team, was just a beautiful thing to see. Um, I've talked about it before, but I, I like to drive the point home since we we, we unfortunately lost Phoebe uh, last July to leukemia. She made it to 13 years old, which, given uh, what she had encountered in her career, was pretty miraculous. But, you know, such a social dog, never went blue on blue with an officer, always could differentiate suspects versus good guys in the same type of camo, running around in brushy conditions. Um you know, my, my retired companion canine Apollo, an English, uh, an English uh, yellow lab, they just buddy up all the time. You know, obviously my dog's not going to do anything but lick a cartel member and maybe sniff out his bad stuff. But Phoebe, Phoebe did mm-hmm. the heavy lifting for all of us there. And there was a lot of trial and error. I mean, they went through two or three years of her not engaging when she needed to engage, not really sure of the environment. Um, not really sure when these guys would stand ground and not necessarily just run because they, they tend to hold their ground a lot against even our best canines and our most formidable canines as far as intimidation, physical presence, male or female. Um, but that particular time in 2011, we were filming many episodes for the Wild Justice TV program. It was our third and final season working with the Nat Geo crew, the National Geographic film crews to do the Game Warden reality show. And Phoebe was rapidly becoming a star of the show, if you will, because she was so cool. And she wasn't just a hardcore bite dog when she needed to be a dual-purpose dog. She was a love bug at the same time. So the public loved her. And, of course, Brian was up in Northern California doing 90% of his bite work, or more even, was working with Shasta County Sheriff's Department all over that Northern California National Forest mecca of cartel marijuana grows. And they were getting bite after bite after bite. They were getting out of close calls with almost having gunfights with AR-15 armed cartel gunmen. But Phoebe would make the dump, you know, before someone else had to go to guns and get that bite, get him down and controlled. Um, it was it was awesome to hear these stories, but we hadn't really worked together. So we were joined together for the Wild Justice TV program on some cases, hoping we would get an apprehension. And it didn't happen in 2011. But in 2012, when we, we had finished the show, we had a good one in Santa Clara County going um, that I really dive into in the, in, in the second chapter of the new book, Hidden War, because this was, like, like we said before the break, this was the light bulb, guys, right? That light bulb moment, Eric, you mentioned. Um, mm-hmm. We didn't have a dog in Santa Clara County. The sheriffs didn't have a dog. We didn't, the closest dog we had was a fish and wildlife canine from Northern California. None of the local agencies, even that had good city dogs, really felt their dogs were suited to be in that really hot heat, going many miles in the brush, couldn't necessarily stay quiet enough, um, patient enough, you know, have kind of that sit-and-wait type of hunter mentality, sitting in brush versus 
you know, a more herbal or, or urban or flatland setting. So we were able to borrow Brian. He came down and joined the sheriff's team on a grow that myself and two other sheriff deputies found um, on, on a place called Yuvis Creek, a stone's throw from where I grew up again in Morgan Hill. And it was harvest time. And the two growers were, again, in green BDUs. Uh, they had a Taurus Judge pistol loaded on their hip, one of them. Another guy, unbeknownst to me, had a Russian Torkarov uh, semi-automatic military pistol. And when when we made visual contact and they were coming closer and closer and closer and Cana and canine Phoebe was up on the point lead kind of in some marijuana on the top of a hillside with surrounded by rifle support and our formation. Um, we saw the guns right away. And one of the guys was starting to work toward the gun and hold it kind of on his hip, like to pull it. So this is one of those things where Brian had to make that call, you know, am I going to give a verbal announcement? Or are we going to do a quick verbal announcement and let the dog go? Because this guy's going to pull on us, and we're about 18 yards away from these guys as they're closing the distance. And sure enough, Brian spotted the the handgun on one guy, and the other guy was starting to pull something from his waistband, but we couldn't quite tell what. Later on, we learned it was that Russian pistol. And the dog was released. The dog hit the guy with the, the Russian pistol that wasn't quite out of his waistband. He goes nose down. Brian sees the guy trying to pull his pistol from the visible holster, which was that Taurus Judge stainless steel big boy, big bore. And Brian just told me, John, take my dog. He had to handle this guy hand to hand. So he didn't pull a pistol on the rest of the team coming up behind him. Um, and being a canine handler, he is armed with a pistol. He has rifle support around him. And me being his canine support for that day, I'm pistol and taser armed only. I'm not pushing a rifle. I need to be mobile and fairly quick to stay with my canine handler and cover him in the event things get crazy with or without the dog. Um, and Phoebe's bite pressure put enough duress on this bad guy to keep him from getting that pistol out of his waistband as he was nose face down in the dirt, but he's pulling that on me. And just as he's pulling it and trying to fight through the, you know, just that grunt of that, that bite force down on his right calf, um, I was able to get that guy under control before he could get a shot off, uh, not only on me, but on all the riflemen coming up behind me. And then Brian was able to take care of that guy's partner who was pushing that other handgun I talked about in the, in the visible holster. And had Phoebe not been there that day, guys, there is no way we don't exchange gunfire with those two guys, given their mindset, given what they were pulling, given what they had to lose. And, and again, it was just... That was the first time I actually saw her engaged in a bite, even though we had had about seven or eight missions beforehand where we hadn't caught or even detected anybody in those growth sites. And that's when I had to make those phone calls and start to, you know, just pitch my case to both chiefs. Man, you can't believe how good Phoebe was today and what happened and how close it was and the timing. And, you know, everyone here is kind of high-fiving that everybody's safe, that no one exchanged gunfire. I mean, the bad guys went away with the dog bite. They didn't end up getting shot vice versa as far as officer safety goes um and that's really what changed the game for us and really made um both bosses just kind of go okay something's got to change soon because if we're going to stay in the game and you guys have done so many adjustments since the first two or th well at that point we'd had three i think yeah we had four officer involved shootings at that point and they just would hold their breath every time we go out on one of these one of these cartel missions whether it was Brian and Shasta, me and Santa Clara, the guys out in Fresno County, didn't matter where we were, just because of the nature of this type of suspect and his propensity for violence and the armament he carried, our bosses knew we want to sit rep as soon as you're clear. 
we want your captain to know, call me directly. I don't care. Break chain of command. We, we need to know what's going on because we need to, we need to respond if one of us get hurt a lot more effectively than we did when we had that shooting in 2005, where my partner was almost killed with that AK round. So in a nutshell, and that's an abbreviated version, but kind of, I get, I get kind of fired up telling the story, kind of reliving it. <laughs> as you guys can imagine. Um, it, it, that was just the moment that I just, I absolutely fell head over heels in love with that dog all over again. And she got a lot of extra snacks that night and, you know, she was, uh, getting the team victory lift from the whole unit. It was, it was a, a good, a good day for Phoebe and a, and a great day for us getting out of that one alive. I want to back up a little bit with the, um, the, the problems that Phoebe was having, uh, not engaging things like that. A couple years is a long time. I mean, that's. You're, you're really putting in a lot of extra work. And I had heard you say before on other shows that, that uh, Brian had just gone and done a bunch of extra training. Do you know what problem that he had identified and how he fixed it? Yeah, it really broke down to, and, and this is something Brian can, uh, when, 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 when he's retired, can speak freely. One of the things is I'd love to get him on your show, guys. And um, definitely uh, a mutual brother of ours, Mike Ritland on Mike Drop. We, we're going to make that happen. And he has so much good knowledge to share and to pull from you guys and share experiences on, on, on a podcast forum. And he'll be able to, to dive into this um, a lo- far more deeper than I can. But the bottom line was all of our dogs were trained in, you know, in either detection work or, you know, scent tracking in semi-urban environments. A lot of building stuff, a lot of flat grasslands. Um, when we started to get our dogs into not just foothills, but mountains with a lot of brush, um, with a lot of weird scents, um, our dogs did not engage any cartel growers that have a distinct smell because of the food they eat, because of the time they're out there, um, the, the way their clothes smell, the scent they leave on the ground. It just, it just had a whole, you know, a, a different look than anything they had seen in any, any, t- any other type of enforcement tracking scent detection or apprehension that they had seen in training or if they had been deployed on a bite. And for Phoebe, there was a little bit of miscommunicating with handlers because getting that connection where, you know, she's 18, 20 inches off the ground, you know, 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 a point guy standing covering with a long gun and other guys in a crouch. And they're, you know, Brian was, you know, at the point where maybe there was a miscommunication with Phoebe or other officers that were that were trying to be involved in the communication and 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 dictate where these suspects were, and then Phoebe's at a level where she can't see him, and there's a little bit of frustration and confusion there. Canine, um, we saw a lot of that, and it, you know, and trial and error, trial and error, trial and error. It, it once Brian got the magic key to setting up scenarios, mock scenarios of the exact environment we work cartel grows in down to the clothing down to the scent down to you know what 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 our what our officer in the bike suit is going to do with behavior it was instant she immediately got it and then after that she became one of these dogs that within a mission or two it was just like that light switch flicked and she would never miss a suspect and if she lost sight of a suspect because one guy ran or it was multiples and you know we, we just had a bunch of squirters blown out of a camp um she she started to hone certain techniques with with brian's training and working around a team not just the handler but working with the whole tactical team at first it was shasta county then it was santa clara county sheriffs then it was our met team where she was our dog now as a team dog 
then then there, there was just so much confidence, so much energy. The dog felt it, the guys felt it, and at that time she just she just never missed. Um, unless environmental circumstances dictated, she just couldn't make that 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 bite arrest. But she would never misidentify anybody or hesitate. Um, with, with once once she got the environment figured out on a, on a repetitive basis, if that makes any sense. Absolutely. You make a, a point that Eric and I drive home because uh, one of the other companies that Eric and I own is HRD um, Police County. We go around the country teaching scenario-based training. Um, in, the, in the law enforcement side of our industry, um, there is a large um, – there's a large contingent of people that preach um, certification, certification standards. And, and there's nobody that's listening to this isn't going to think, oh, we have to be certified. We don't have to be certified. That's not at all what we're saying. Um, but right. we go to these scenario-based training seminars and teach like this is what these skill sets look like for the dog and for the handler depending on where we're at. And I can't count right. the number of times that Eric and I both or Ray or any of our social media platforms or emails or text messages or carrier pigeon or whatever. Um, after this, almost every time, um, at least one or two handlers have come to these things. We were in front of 225 handlers last year. We'll inbox us and say, hey, you know, I can't believe that we did this scenario at your seminar. And literally like two weeks later, it, the almost the identical thing happened. Um, one of the big things you talk That's about. That's awesome, that, man. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, one, one of the big things that we talk about a lot that you keep hitting on is no blue on blue. The dogs have to be neutral to cover guys. And that's a huge issue and police canine, especially when you're doing building clearing. And I'm not even talking about SWAT teams. I'm just talking about if you're a canine handler from a small County, right. And you're asked to clear a building with a fish and wildlife guy who's not a canine handler and a trooper at three o'clock in the morning. Right. And they don't know how to work around the dog. The dog has got to be neutral to cover guys. And that's a skill set all in of itself. Something that I, I'm having a handler school going on right now. And I was bitching about it to my handler today about, you know, making sure that the dog is, is looking where he needs to be looking and not paying attention to anybody else standing around. And he's, you know, and we're giving the dog the correct cues and which direction to be going and everything else. So, yeah, um, it sounds like Phoebe was getting squared away and that Brian did a great job of presenting those pictures to her so that she had a, how many bites did she have? Like a lot, right? I mean, she was extremely successful. Yeah, Ted, she, um, she, she had a, uh, an amazing career for the type of work and environment we worked in. She retired with 116 bites. And she had 900 other arrests where they gave up or they got bait and they, you know, heard the, the word was out with these, with the, not just Phoebe, but all the canines that were following her, you know, at the federal level with uh, BLM and with Forest Service. Uh, Santa Clara got a great dog, you know, largely based on the experience they had with Phoebe, you know, so our old Met team where it started to get theirs. But yeah, she had, she had an amazing, amazing career and she didn't, and she only had to bite, you know, under 10% of the suspects she bait, even on the cartel front. Um, a lot of these guys just started to get wind that, hey, you know, if you resist and you have a weapon and you pull it, you're, you're going to get bit and you're going to get bit hard because that's just the way it goes. And it, it started to circulate in the cartel circles of that. So we were making a lot of arrests where, you know, we weren't having to go hands-on that hard, and that was just a win for everybody. Um, but to your point, it was that's exactly what it was, Ted. And, Eric, I was – not being a handler myself of a dual purpose dog, but watching my handlers on the team become trainers like you guys are doing and like Mike does. And, you know, just, just seeing that, that light bulb go off and man, if we had all been communicating and I had known about you guys, guys like Ritland and our, and, you know, Brian knew, you know, all these guys learning it the same way, but we weren't, you know, tactics were being honed. Um, it's just so cool to see the canine world, communicating so much more, you know, at conferences with the schools you guys are doing, the certifications you guys are doing, uh, the podcast arena that, you know, I was completely 
you know, ignorant to really up until retirement. Um, and that's what it was, Ted, to your point. It was just putting her in a good, realistic, scenario-based example. And, you know, she was Einstein. And then before that, she was kind of, you know, tripping along like, I don't want to let anybody down. I don't want to let anybody down, but there's too much going on here that I haven't seen in training. Um, and that was the, and that was the other thing guys too. This was very, very, very different work for game wardens on any level and not something game warden canines or even, even patrol law enforcement canines, you know, sheriffs, police canines. They just weren't seeing that type of, that type of work. And, you know, now it's very mainstream. Like I said, it's a good effect and I'm glad it is, but man, it was, uh, it was a new science then. And it was very imprecise to say the least. And, and that's where that, that time gap really that, that training delay happened with, with Phoebe. It was just finding the right combination and getting her into the right mode to do it. So when we do our HRD seminars, one of the uh, – basically there's two things that we do there. One is um, like police canine-specific type scenarios, and the the rest is all environmental stuff, stress and, and weird – as weird shit as we can come up with to, nice. for the dog environmentally. <laughs> Anytime at any of those scenarios or those seminars, the dogs do great in the police canine side of it. It's almost always the environmental problems that they have. You know, uh, they're not used to the dark rooms. They're not used to the height height or anything like that. Once you guys started kind of centralizing the type of training you were doing with the dogs, what type of environmental specific to your job or your mission statement were you having to really focus with on the dogs? When it came to met work, it was navigating through obstacles, you know, whether it be down trees, thick brush, um, you know, some of these pitfall traps, these big, you know, well cisterns that are super deep, making sure a dog doesn't run into one of those and end up, you know, 20 feet in a, in a, in a, in a dug hole, um, you know, creek crossings, caves, just things like that. And it, it really got to just, we kept training in mock growth sites that we'd already eradicated but we go set up the same scenario that we might have done a week before when we actually had the takedown, when all the infrastructure was still there. In some cases, where we hadn't reclamated and cleaned up the trash, hadn't you know uh, cleaned up or rectified some of the environmental damages to the slopes, where all those obstacles were still there. Or we could doctor them up enough that they were so close to what the actual you know ar- arrest operation um, revealed, you know, say four or five days before, and that's really what did it. Eric, to your question, it really happened to be um, getting her comfortable in obstacles that when she physically runs into something and loses sight of a suspect or doesn't get that, you know, doesn't get that odor, that she can read off other cues from the team and know which way to go when he ran. I mean, we had a certain way, and I, you know, going into the tactic a little bit, but just where an officer points a gun and just taps a part of his body and says the name. if she's confused, she finds it. And it doesn't matter if it's a sheriff's officer that's on our team that she's met that morning. If it's me, Brian, one of our other operators on met, or it's a forest service LEO or a park ranger, it could be anybody as long as they know what to do and how to direct her. And you know, every mission, Brian does an amazing canine briefing. Everyone gets to know that dog. Everyone gets social with that dog. That dog smells, that dog looks you in the eye, gives you that hip check, that rub. And she knows who you are. I mean, it's just it's amazing. We could have 10 guys on the operation from just our unit, or we could have 50 out there from seven different agencies. And she never got confused as long as she made that greeting in the morning. And the officers, not so much her, but, but all the guys supporting that mission that were not necessarily part of the canine team understood that they were part of that canine team. And we were really driving our mission 
and our tactics around the dogs. Um, when I got to get met together and we got to pick all those guys and I knew I had Brian and I had, you know, later Nick and, and, and these other handlers coming in and out of the team. I'm like, okay, now we have this amazing super tool that's going to keep us a lot safer. We're going to catch a lot more guys. So let's play to this tool. Let's not try to throw her into a stack and work around a small unit formation tactic that we used to do without a dog. It just didn't make any sense to me. So we kind of threw a lot of old on the ground, light running, you know, chasing them down on foot, which worked some of the time. And there was a lot of risk in that. And I was one of those light runners that was doing the dog's job along with some other guys with Santa Clara before we really started to work with Brian and Phoebe. Um, but I think centering all the training really around the dog's capabilities and the core was that we had a really good dog and, and a handler that knew his stuff. And then everybody could just kind of be open-minded about that change. And, and it worked, it worked really well. And um, other teams that we've worked with or, you know, shared experiences with or everything from helping choose dogs that might fit that particular mission really well in size and in, in demeanor and in bite force and prey drive, all those different things. Um, it, it's worked out pretty well. I'm assuming, <laughs> I'm assuming every dog was compared to Phoebe. Phoebe's the standard. <laughs> Let's try to select dogs as close to her as we can. We, we, it, 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 it ended up being that Eric, honestly, it, it really did. Um, <laughs> especially, especially if they're coming to Met, you know, I mean, there's a lot of our dogs yeah. would, would do patrol with a lot of support in, in the controlled environment they saw in training at the Academy. And then if they mimic that for standard patrol, but once you started getting into the woods with, a, with, with very little support in those, you know, those hot conditions, um, keeping the dog from overheating, keeping her focused. Um, she didn't have a problem with heat, but we've had some, some, you know, big males, some mouths that are amazing dogs, but they just, at a certain point, you know, in those real, real hot summer long mission days, things start to erode pretty quick or, um, you know, the, the panting, you know, lying still and, and not just getting so nutted up with prey drive when we actually see that suspect or not in position or, you know, we're not basically under our rules of engagement. We're not ready to deploy yet. And we've lost some cases because of that, because that dog was so fired up, you know, and, and so motivated to make that move and kind of, kind of, we kind of blew it, you know, and that was just trial and error learning and, and going back to training with some of the, some of the bigger dogs and, and just mixing it up and, and seeing where they're best suited. And so far since Phoebe, we've been really lucky to have some, some really good dogs, both uh, male and female on the, on the mouth run, especially that's all we're running now. And, and they're doing terrific work. And um, most of the other agencies with the exception of a, a handful of a couple of shepherds, we um, got, got quite a few mouths running around the West Coast on the federal, state, and local level just because of their uh, their ability to, to function so well in those hot conditions. Yeah, very nice. So I got on SWAT in my department in 1997. I was on there for nice. 14 and a half years. When I got on SWAT, we wore a, a, a specific SWAT uniform with our soft body armor underneath it and our duty belts or some belt that they gave us maybe with a drop leg holster. Then the next step was we wore like a um, a Molly vest, not not a tactical vest, anything like that. We added that on so we could put some stuff on it. And then, you know, eventually it evolved into, um, you know, wearing the full tactical type gear. Right. Um, canine was no different. Uh, the canine guys were just in uniform doing whatever. Then eventually we got guys with uh, the, the tactical bungee leash where they can carry a rifle um, and then moved on to, you know, other equipment. So all the way back from the first time you're working with Brian, he's got a pistol and that's pretty much it. Leashing a dog. How, 
what has changed through trial and error? What worked and what didn't? What does a guy look like now for for Met when he's going out with the dog? Yeah, like like in your career, Eric, how you saw it morph so much on gear, you know, from that SWAT tenure you had. Yeah, it was the same way for us. When when we started at the, the cartel hunting game, it was whatever Brian felt he needed, he brought to the table. And we were at the point, I mean, at that point, there was – very little budget other than getting the dog and getting the dog trained. That was a big step for our little conservation agency at the time. So when it comes to any type of body armor for the dog, um, any type of stable harness rigs, because we're helicoptering on the short haul line in and out of these grows a lot with our dogs, uh, goggles for the dogs, you know, for sustained air flight when they're suspended under the bird with us. Um, we didn't have any of that. And when we got met formed, we had a lot of support from um, there's we have what's called the California Wildlife Officers Foundation or CalWAF, and that's you know ex game wardens or or you know um, people that have a love for conservation and have some resources and they formed up a foundation to kind of pick up the pieces where we didn't have the budget within agency spending, and one place they really helped and this was all happening when Met formed was canine equipment. Whatever the canines needed, they would find a way to get us. Um, and the sniper team. When, when I got the sniper team developed, we had a good rifle platform, but we had to add night vision. We had to add, in, you know, optics, and we had to step the game up considerably. But on the canine front specifically, that's when Brian and the other handlers got to have all the stuff they needed. They got to have soft body armor vests for the dogs where we could run them without them overheating. And that was a fine line. If it was a 100-degree day and we were going to be out on a long hump, that armor might not get worn by the dog just because of the burnout factor, you know, the heat exhaustion, heat stroke. But we had it for the shorter humps. We had it for, you know, the indoor entry, the perimeter containment. If we were dealing with dwellings, um, we still use that. Um, having a, a, a short haul harness and a carabiner clip in, in a canine pack because whether we're using a helicopter that day, if something does go sideways, we're going to call in for an airship. And we need to be able to take that dog out with us. So we always carry that. And something we really got into heavily is we built our trauma medicine program very advanced as, as well as the small unit tactics, the firearms training, uh, maneuvering, field craft, the sniper unit was trauma medicine. And getting that up to the snuff of everything we had learned in the global war on terror through our military fighting over in the sandbox. And what they were learning with canine trauma support from a gunshot wound, from a concussion, um, you know, it, our dogs can certainly get shot. Our dogs have been shot at. We haven't had any of them shot by cartel guys where it, they were actually hit, fortunately. But they've been concussed many times by big rocks on the ground that these guys, hammers that they have in their camp, um, stabbed. That's another counter tactic that we can talk a lot about was these specific fixed blade knives that these, these growers are using to take out the canine, which is the Achilles heel of, of, of shutting down their operations. Um, so all of those things came into play and now our handlers carry all those things and sometimes even more specific tools that might fit that mission based on where we're going to be and how long we're going to be out. You know, you kind of lead into the next topic here. Um, you know, so with the amazing success of Phoebe, um, and you know, 900, you know, surrenders or apprehensions, total apprehensions, including bites. Um, and then the program kind of spinning up after that because of the success of Phoebe, uh, you know, the story that I think you're kind of painting is someone that's very similar to um, some of the guys we hear um, that have gone over to the Middle East and they start running counter canine operations. Because, I mean, you know, first and foremost, the dogs there is a standoff ability so that you guys can kind of know where somebody's at, what they're doing. And then, of course, 
it's for a use of force option too. Um, but kind of talk a little bit about how the cartels started trying to run counter canine operations um, and what you guys did uh, to kind of combat that. Yeah, it really started to show up, guys, around 2014. Um, 2014 and 2015 was were a couple of really hard seasons. I probably want to say 2015 was the worst season because Phoebe was obviously making a name for herself, more so, I think, on the bad guy side at, you know, the grow bosses that were running all these grow sites, hundreds of grow sites all over the Northwest, and we're talking Northern California primarily. And, you know, every time Phoebe has an effective bite, basically – not only have we shut down a uh, 5, 10, 15, 20,000 plant garden, which is going to yield anywhere between 5 and maybe $20 million of black market profit for that group, but we've taken some of their best growers out. You know, these guys that are up here doing this, that were smuggled across the border, embedded in plain sight, like we talked about at the beginning of the broadcast, they're here for a reason because they're really good at what they do. They grow well, they camouflage well, they don't get detected. They did it in Mexico first under the Federalis nose, and now they're. They're a journeyman, you know, skilled operative to do that stuff here. And when we have to bite apprehend one of those guys, they're taken out of circulation physically for a long time where they can't go work in a growth site. They're going to be in custody. They're going to get deported or not, depending on, you know, the whole sanctuary state thing going on, depending on where we're at. But the bottom line is they're, they're, you know, they're incapacitated pretty good for quite some time. They're not going to be doing grow operations for, for the, the immediate future, at least. Um, and when the cartel started to see that, and then they started to see other dogs that are still active that I can't mention names on, some of ours behind Phoebe, some federal dogs, some county dogs doing the same work, now these grows are dropping and dropping and dropping, and these organizations are starting to lose some money, and they're starting to lose their key people. Um, and that's when they started to put 8 to 10-inch fixed blade knives on their hip, along with a pistol, you know, or a holstered pistol, sometimes a long gun. But they knew that if this dog is on a long deployment and the dog's coming for them and all those officers are 30, 40, sometimes 50, 100 yards back and can't gain that ground in the apprehension in that, in that, 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 that adjustment, um, they're going to go ahead and try to stab that dog right in the jugular or right you know, up to the front between the first couple of ribs and try to get that dog out of circulation permanently, knowing they're not going to take any gunfire from us because we're not in a position to make that shot. They haven't pulled a gun. They get a quick stab in, and then maybe they release, whatever the case may be, um, to the point where some of these guys would actually, they'd be in pairs, and one guy would actually take the bite, just not to his neck, but he'd take it up in the arm. And if he couldn't stab the dog with his free hand, whether it was his support or his weapon hand, his partner would come in with the, with the, the fixed blade. And we had uh, several federal dogs stabbed, uh, one fatally actually, two fatally I think that year in 2015, um, another dog that I, again, can't mention a name that ran with Phoebe is kind of like a little prodigy and watching this federal young male and this great female work together and do double deployments, you know, in Northern California with us working with other agencies was just, it, it was the most beautiful thing, man. Talk about a perfectly orchestrated symphony guys, but they got, they got to that dog and they almost fatally stabbed him, but he survived with about 18 stitches and, and some emergency surgery. Um, and that dog's doing great work all over, all over the country, actually, still to this day, um, and might even surpass Phoebe someday in bite apprehensions because he's that dog. So um, that changed the game for us. Um, we, weren't, we didn't have that happen to Phoebe or any of our dogs, but we did have our Phoebe concussed many times. 
Um, if she got on a long deployment and it's just the way the chase went and we couldn't quite get to her fast enough, uh, we would see, you know, her hit in the head with large stones. I mentioned hammers and I haven't really talked about this before much, but when we were filming for that wild justice TV show, we would put the contour camera, which was the old school, what a GoPro is now on, on Phoebe. And when she would go make that run out where, you know, you wouldn't see any officers and there'd be kind of that craziness going through the brush we found some of that footage that she ran during wild justice when she wasn't catching guys, but had been deployed. And we found out why, because she would get in a fight with a guy, you know, 30, 40 yards out of our view, the guy had hit her in the head with like a rock or a stick and he'd get up and run and she'd, you know, kind of shake it off being tough. And she, she'd stay on the bike. She'd keep going and she'd get, she'd get basically hit or concussed or struck by some object. This guy could find just off the ground cause he's kind of running for his life and, and she take a lot of hits and it, it's amazing to me that she wasn't harmed more heavily um, from a concussion standpoint than she was, but we didn't know how much she was getting those hits at the time until we really saw what was going on. And that changed our tactics that changed how our brothers at the federal level and the state level do it as well. Uh, shorter deployments um, really calculating when we're going to deploy, when we're not going to deploy, you know, for the dog's sake when we saw these, these, these uh, counter techniques start and our adjustment helped and we haven't lost any dogs, at least that I'm aware of since I retired. Uh, and then during that, the rest of the tenure from about 2016 on, um, the game changed a lot so we could keep our dogs safe. If, if Ted and I were the growers and the dog came in, Ted would just shove me in front of the dog. I <laughs> wholeheartedly exactly. believe that. <laughs> Dad be like, Eric, you're going, Eric. Go after him, I, and then take off running. Enough, it hurts. I don't need to prove anything. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. yeah, even in a bike suit, man. So before we wrap up, <laughs> oh yeah. So before we wrap up, I'm gonna get on my soapbox a minute, and then I'm gonna uh, have you get into a little bit of the, the truth of uh, cartel weed and and some of the stuff you were seeing, uh, what it was doing up in your area up in Northern California. I, and it's probably because of my, is it, this even goes back before my law enforcement career. I am staunchly anti-marijuana. Right. Um, I absolutely despise it. Um, I don't, uh, I think all of you out there that say it's just a harmless plant are ridiculously misinformed. Um, I watched um, in the beginning of my career, if we got called to a guy who was bipolar, they were the, they were the worst. They were like, Oh shit, man, we're going to fight this dude. When I retired, everyone in the city was bipolar. Right. And there's a lot of studies that came out and said that, uh, that marijuana can cause bipolar disorder and everybody in Canton smokes weed. Um, it is not a harmless plant, like people say. And not only because of that, but because of the environmental factors and the crime associated with. So there's this mis misnomer that if you just legalize it, the crime involved with marijuana will vanish. And it's the most ridiculous right. statements I've ever heard. Colorado can absolutely tell you that that's not true. And I guarantee you out West, those States out there can tell you the same. Um, you talk in your book and on other podcasts and interviews about the chemicals that you guys were finding. Eventually you figured out what it was that they were coating on these plants. Um, I, I, without knowing, I would suspect that those, those chemicals probably had something to do with the leukemia that Phoebe got. Um, yeah. But talk a little bit about the truth. Now, there's a lot of states now that have legalized marijuana. Talk a little bit about what you found through your time and your research and your 
on the ground, hands-on activity about how much the cartels still actually control the dope. Yeah, I mean, that that's the thing. And it, it doesn't really matter where we sit on the, if you're for marijuana and you're a legal grower, or you're a user, or you're totally against it. Um, Eric, I, I, I feel where you're coming from. And the bottom line is, there's a dark side to cannabis and it doesn't matter where you sit on the spectrum. Um, and that is the cartel weed. And what our team focused on was this stuff isn't going away because suddenly a state like California, Colorado, Montana, Alaska, you know, various states where you're at, <clears throat> excuse me, out East that are doing it too. Um, the idea that we're going to, we're going to just going to regulate it. It's going to be in dispensaries and the black market's going to go away. California, my old state, has proven that hasn't happened. Um, Prop 64 that legalized recreational marijuana use and possession and growing, as well as all the medicinal laws, um, it is structured in such a way that it's actually fueling a bigger black market, both with the quasi-legal growers that are trying to do it on private land or under that auspice of being legal, and then the cartels where it's never legal to trespass onto public or private property um, and grow this stuff. They're having a field day in California because they still have a nationwide market all the way back to the East Coast where you guys are at to sell this really potent, really effective weed that everybody likes that's tainted with these EPA banned toxic chemicals they put on this stuff, uh, trade name Carbofuran, Furidan, Metafos, all of these different, um, different chemicals that were banned by the EPA from even being possessed or used for legitimate agriculture over 20 years ago in America because they're so toxic. Um, the active ingredient, these are nerve agents, these are anticoagulant substances that were actually developed by the Nazis for their nerve agents of their biological weapons way back in World War II. That's what this stuff is. And it's so potent, the growers put it on, all their, on their weed, no concern for the fact that this stuff's gonna dry on the bud and the flower. It's gonna be consumed by unsuspecting customers on the black market, kids, medical patients, recreational users, you name it. Um, but this stuff, when it's put on the plants, nothing tampers with the plant. Not a not a little you know cottontail rabbit, not a 400-pound black bear, not one of us. If we go in within a day of this stuff being treated with it, I mean, you, you know, you're, you're going to have a nervous reaction to it. You're possibly going to die. Animals are going to get killed. Um, but you're going to get your plant out of the woods into market if it's not interdicted by a law enforcement team like ours or many others. You're going to get that plant into the market. You're going to make several thousand dollars on that plant on the black market. And, you know, human health and safety is not a concern for these groups. So marijuana from that standpoint, what we can say, regardless of where we sit on the issue of good or bad cannabis in general, that marijuana does harm people unequivocally. It's a health issue. It's a carcinogen. It's a, you know, nerve agent. And it's horrible stuff. And the fact that so few people know they're ingesting this stuff because they're getting this cheap, really potent, high THC percentage content weed, and then they're being complicit in a black market for the cartels in America that are destroying our nation's environment in the process, you know, making some of our trails unsafe for our public to go enjoy, you know, the beautiful outdoors. I don't think black market users would ever want to be complicit in that if they knew what was going on. And, and that's, that's that ugly dark side, Eric, that you hint at. And this is it scientifically proven and when you look at all this stuff and the reason i really drove this point home with all these stories of these chemicals and we put in in the appendices section of hidden war the actual biological science behind what these toxic substances are is trying to educate people because i am blown away when i go do speaking teaching book signing functions whatever i do on the east coast how many people just go oh my gosh lieutenant we had no idea 
this was going on in America. We had no idea cartels were embedded, and we had no idea weed was poisonous. It's just weed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, knowledge is power, and ignorance is bliss, right, guys? And uh, it, it, it's amazing, and, and i got to thank you guys for bringing this up in this discussion so more people will get the message um, through your platform and many others. And it, it, we, we just need to share that message that there is a dark side. People need to be aware of it. Yeah. So uh, speaking of which, the new book is Hidden War, correct? That's correct. Yeah. It's Hidden yeah. War, How Special Operations Game Wardens Are Reclaiming America's Public Lands. And that's the one that um, that really tells the latest and greatest of the progressive team, um, you know, the political struggles to get the team built, the personalities, the dogs. It's very dog heavy. Um, a lot of graphics, a lot of pictures. The publisher did a great job on this because they're very like-minded. Caribou Publishing, which is Gun Digest and Recoil Magazine. It's that whole entity. We're all one big brand, Recoil TV and whatnot. Um, and that's the one that's really, I can speak truly about now because I am retired. That's uh, just telling the story of the guys doing it, not just our agency, but guys like you back east and narcotics groups and helping with canine teams. And the fact that this is a national law enforcement, a national community issue. Um, that not just game wardens need to look at, that we all need to look at. You know, I talk about the thin green line, guys, of conservation and preservation of our wildlife resources and our waterlands, wildlands and everything else. And uh, that's that's our whole country, you know, not just game wardens. It's all of us in the law enforcement first responder arena and the public, and um, people need to know. So I, I appreciate you guys uh, sharing these stories with me today. It's, it's really a treat, and thank you. Yeah, and you know um, that's available on Amazon. I think you can get it like pretty much anywhere. Uh, I'm looking at it right here. It's got it's yeah. It's I mean you can get it. You can download it on Kindle. You can get an audio book. You can do hardcover. Uh, yeah. Eric just texted me. He said he's gonna download it tonight and read it. Um, <laughs> so uh, <laughs> if you don't have so, time to read. I yeah. You know, we, we got the audio book too that we just read for, and that just dropped. So um, that's that's another option. If, you know, like us, I don't have a lot of time to read myself, so I'm listening to podcasts and audio books. <laughs> but it's there. Yeah. Uh, so where can we keep tabs on you? I know you have um, johnnorris.com, correct? Yeah, um, definitely through my website, guys. Um, the fastest and easiest way is all my updates, just like with you guys. I'm, I'm part of the social media game now on Instagram especially. And Instagram is just at John Norris, J-O-H-N-N-O-R-E-S. Um, you'll find me on Instagram. You'll get the latest updates on podcasts I'm doing, and I'll put out an announcement when this launches. So I certainly want all of my followers and the people connected to this to really listen to this podcast and get to know your platform if they don't already. Um, but they, all my latest updates happen on Instagram before they even hit the website. But you can check the website as well. That's just www.johnnorris.com. You can get to my email through my website, or you can hit me with a direct message on warden hiring questions, canine questions, uh, anything to do related to any of the products or, or outreach uh, venues I'm about or any speaking engagements and things like that as well. Awesome. Um, Eric, where are you at? Um, actually, I just follow John on Instagram while we're sitting here. Um, I'm at Van S Canine on Instagram and Van S Canine Academy on uh, Facebook. And where else? Uh, we have Patreon on Patreon, yep, yep. Working Dog Radio. Nice. Um, 
And how about you? Uh, Ted underscore Summers on Instagram, and then Torchlight K nine letter K number nine is the uh, kennel. Um, that's where I'll post some videos. We got a new dog today. Um, as a duchy and he's gonna hurt people um he tried to hurt me today and he he bit the transporter today it was pretty funny um <laughs> yeah he's he's one of those boys he's, he's a spicy boy uh and then the, the podcast has its own uh instagram working underscore dog underscore radio uh that's where we do all yep. of our a lot of our contests and all that kind of stuff um and do giveaways and whatnot so yeah uh john this has awesome. been um a fantastic interview um i think people are really gonna dig it um, yeah, and I hope that uh, we can get Brian on once he's um, officially official retired. <laughs> that would be uh, an absolutely, awesome guys. Interview I will, too. Yeah, he's got a couple more years to go, and then I will uh, I will definitely broker that that uh, that connection. That'd be a lot of fun to see that happen. And Eric, real quick, can you give me your Instagram one more time? Van S K nine V A N E S S letter K number nine. Gotcha. All right, guys, I got you both as well and as if, working dog. And if John, if you go all the way back. If you go all the way back into uh, Mic Drop, you'll see uh, Ted and I were on there. Um, it's one of his Team Dog episodes. I mm-hmm. think the first Team Dog episode, maybe it the was, second. It was a while ago. But uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was, was, yeah, it's it's been yeah. a while. But go back and listen. It's pretty funny. Um, I tell some undercover sex stories you know from when i was undercover <laughs> weird shit like that so it's that's a nice cock i remember that was the, that's the only thing i remember from that yeah. interview um <laughs> yes uh, I, gotta so yeah. listen, I gotta listen to it now guys <laughs> It's uh, drive. I got time. Oh yeah, it's it's pretty funny. (laughs) It's pretty good. Uh, So yeah, John, it's been awesome, man. We appreciate it. Um, So we'll catch up with you guys soon. Awesome, guys. Thanks for all you're doing. Stay safe and uh, look forward to talking again. Thanks for having me on. Thanks. All right, buddy. Thanks. Our oldest sponsor, our first sponsor, and our good friend and a great dude all around, Arno at ALM Canine Equipment. Uh, His suits and his canine tugs and bite sleeves are. Some of the best in the industry. His dude, I have a whole array of different uh, hidden sleeves from him of all various levels of dogs. Uh, he has a discount code for us, which is amazing. WD Radio for ten percent off your first order. ALM Canine Equipment.com. Give him a give him a shout, man. Arno is a good guy with great quality equipment. ALM Canine Equipment.com. One of the original three. Sponsors that have been with us from the beginning is Tripwire Operations Group, LLC. They're an internationally recognized leading provider of products, services, and training for federal, state, local, and law enforcement agencies and military units. They are ATF licensed for explosive material manufacturer, importer, exporter, and dealer with a wide range of explosive products to offer, including custom kits. These kits are great for detection canine imprinting, and they have three different kits to choose from. These three kits combined create the complete picture for the explosive threats of canines. Be sure to check them out, tripwireops.org. The music in this episode is used with permission by Brother Deeg. Be sure to check him out at Brother Deeg, that's spelled D-E-G-E dot net. Be sure to check him out there or on iTunes, Amazon, CD Baby, or anywhere you stream media. This episode has been edited and co-produced by Alicia Brandt. Visit our other sites at patreon.com, look for Working Dog Radio, hrdpolicecanine.com, and look for the nearest seminar near you. Reasons I got my wants, still got that feeling, but I'm too old to die young now. Too-
Working Dog Radio was graciously granted permission to use this music by Brother Deeg. Be sure to check him out at brotherdeeg.blogspot.com. That's spelled brother, D-E-G-E, dot blogspot.com. Be sure to buy him a beer at Amazon, iTunes, or CD Baby, or anywhere you stream your music. Working Dog Radio was edited and co-produced by Alicia Brandt.